to the mic uh, and tell you, Jin, that I think Roseanne, we're spiritually connected. That's what I'm going to say. I really vibes very strongly with her program as a youth. And I thought like, in my head, I was like a fantasy member of their family. I could picture myself, but I would sometimes pretend that I would like in my mind that there would be like a storyline where I was like their cousin. <laughs> that would come to stay with the Connors. I very much strongly identified with her show. So I don't know there's a deep, there's a deep bond there is what I'm saying. <laughs> Strangely enough, I also feel a connection with her, but it comes more from her practice of Kabbalah and how good she has, how good she is at it. And the sphere that she particularly seems to play in, I also sometimes have been known to dabble in that sphere. So I think we have the kinship in that way i guess in a spiritual way i'm like her grandson and in a spiritual way you're a member of the connor family i think that's totally fair so yeah you guys might know each other at like it's from sphere school or a sphere work you might have to see yes. each other around yes that's a good that's a good way to that's a good way to describe it sphere school or sphere work <laughs> this is fascinating um we are joined this evening by somebody very quite spectacular. I don't want to hype him up too much. I do like to hype up my guests, but I don't want to put too much pressure on this guest because I could get carried away and say he's a powerful wizard of like fantasy <laughs> and imagination, of a synthesizer of, of traditions, old and new, torchbearer of like a new light of the cosmos, even you could say, but that could put a lot of pressure on someone to go that far, right? So I would just say he's someone who's really quite fascinating, who posts amazing content that I really vibe with. Kind of a reply bro, but really a standalone, stand-up character of his own. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening we have the one and only Jin the Ninja, Wukong Reborn. Welcome to Here Comes the Backlash. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here excited to be in conversation with you and all conversations are dialecticals and all dialectics are alchemy so let's do us some alchemy we should everything is everything is alchemy right but is it all dialectical i'm detecting tell me what you think about my theories of this i first found a little bit of like trilectics like that's a given i think orwell was pretty much like upfront about some trilectical action going maybe with the three kind of yeah branches of the new world order that he wrote about in um 1984 but Octolectics and sexlectics are where it is at right now. Like sexlectics, I think are just kind of like psychosexual, like the element of all politics. I think our uh, friend Basil is really, really big into the psychosexual element. Just thinking of Basil. Exactly. So that's like a sexlectics. He picked up on that quickly, and that is a very much a neo-bactrian uh, <laughs> tradition. It's part of his academy, I think, now for sure. But then there's the octolectic. I don't know what you think about this, but there is some element to that with there's like some kind of eight headed God thing that I found from ancient Egypt called the Ogdoad. And I discovered it right around the same time I was making up Octolectics. And I think that, yeah, the world is run by an ancient Egyptian. Uh, it's a very strange like thing that uh, not much is written about. But yeah, the Octolectic is they're like the, the head of the, I guess, planetary government, let's say. Well, in like the buddhist conception the dragon who is the we'll say the shadow god of all the planets and all the stars he also has eight heads and a raven so i just think that's very interesting to go along with the shadow planet government 
<laughs> Thank you, Jen. This is going to be great. Keep doing that. This is perfect. Just keep affirming me. This will go perfect. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. No, Jen, no, please challenge me. I do beg of you because you are really somebody who's very like wise. And so I'm really happy to have you on the program this evening because your posts do excite me. You post about a lot of, um, I guess I would describe them as esoteric concepts. Maybe gods and goddesses is a, a concept. I don't know if that's the right word, but they strike me as these ancient uh, beings that you're kind of depicting uh, alongside art and descriptions, uh, but they're often synthesized with other traditions like uh, Kabbalah. I guess, yeah, it's a synthesis maybe of like Vedic uh, traditions and Kabbalah, but I even see like uh, Christianity weaved in there at times and other traditions. Uh, I think even Islam. Did you post any pictures of Prophet Muhammad lately? And like, no, I don't think he did that. Uh, yeah. too far. That would be too far even for me. However, I have been tempted to post Al-Qadir, who is also sometimes syncretized with St. George, the Dragon Slayer. So there's a whole relationship there. But I definitely am an esoteric poster. I think that that's a very good way to describe me. I think I appreciate that you vibe with it. I vibe with your things. I, I mean, I love the post left. I love like the dissident right. I love what you guys do. I don't really consider myself a part of it. I've definitely followed all of you for a long time, at least since lockdowns and COVID and all that. But I think that I kind of went my own direction. And I think, but I definitely think like you, Amy, Therese, Basil, I'm, that's kind of like my trifecta of like people who I think mm. influence my current politics, we'll say. Interesting. Well, thank you. That's high, that's high praise. I must say, uh, I almost, I'm almost tempted to do my Amy, Therese, uh, impression but she followed me back so we're gonna stop doing that first of all yeah jen i want to shout out i think actually parabola is the uh user who i think kind of maybe tipped me off right who i associate with uh kind of i want to say stumbling on you but you know how the internet and these social medias work they're kind of kaleidoscopic in a way where you're like connected and then you're like not and things come and go but i feel like we stumbled onto a very uh, similar path of some sort in the last maybe six months as a lot of other things i feel like coalesced uh, and so it's like a pleasure i feel like you were a part of this i don't know whatever enterprise is this strange um, spaceship I'm building here. Here comes the backlash. It's like a, it's a constellation of different types or whatever. My big question really is just like, who are you? How did you get so smart? Well, I don't think I'm that smart. And I don't think I'm even that interesting. Knowledgeable. But How about knowledgeable? Knowledgeable. Okay, I accept that. I'll accept that. I, I will own that title. And obviously, obviously, shout out to Parabola as well, because, yeah, they are shout like a connection. Shout out Parabola. User Parabola. Yeah, 100%. Yes. And because love is the only way, as they say in the K-pop songs. So <laughs> um, who am I? So I am mixed. And in this way, I kind of feel like Basil and I are kind of like spiritual brothers also. Like you and I are kind of spiritual brothers. And then Basil's kind of like also my spiritual brother because we have like this weird commonality in things but anyway so i mixed my dad's ethnic chinese from southeast asia i grew up in toronto i was like a weird kid uh, i was really into um like hermetic catholicism like, like very esoterica exactly like how i am now but just with Catholic stuff. And, but I always would say I was Buddhist because obviously we would go sometimes to the, um, there's a big uh, Chinese Mahayana Buddhist temple in Richmond Hill. We'd go to funerals and like weddings sometimes and like 
like uh, the ghost holidays. And anyway, so we, I would do that and I would be really interested. I felt like that was my vibe. I felt like uh, that's who I am. Like the bodhisattvas is so beautiful. Like the Chinese garden is so beautiful. I just was like, this is my thing. But then I also was like, I'm the monkey king because like all Chinese boys of a certain age think they're the monkey king. So it's like very trickster. It's very like, I want to subvert heaven. I want to subvert the world. So, or if maybe not subvert is the wrong word, but especially right now, but maybe the right word is like, you want to shake things up. You want to steal. Uh, Upset the apple cart a little bit. Yes. Pranks or maybe a little like, just a little fun, a little fun. A little fun. So like a little naughty, maybe even a little like, um, like you know, chaos demony, sure, but sure. not like not like anti-cosmic, just like, hijinks, um, hijinks. hijinks, just to get, make exactly. a point, to make a point. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> just kind of like throw the ruling order in chaos. So I basically went and got a Kala Chakra initiation in 2004 from the Dalai Lama when he was visiting Toronto. Oh. I was may, like, I, may I ask what that is exactly? Uh, that yeah, like- no problem. So it's basically, so I didn't really understand it when I did it. <laughs> but what it is, it's like you go, it's a public ritual. So you all show up, you sit there. It's like four or five hours. He does like various things. He does a teaching of the text. There's other people that will give teachings on that text so basically what it is is a tantra is a cycle of texts that and commentaries and like amended texts and it's it's like a huge body of work almost it's like a a whole canon unto itself Mm -hmm. so each tantra so each tantric cycle is really a complete ontological system and they're all different but they can be combined and they can be categorized in different ways so you develop a system through combining certain texts with certain other texts and then also adi yoga which is like a mind practice so to answer your question it's basically a public ritual and he's a amazing ritual master like regardless of what anyone thinks of him he his ritual method is perfect so he does this teaching he's given it many many times publicly and Basically, you get a little practice text when you're done and you go on your way. And that's pretty much what happened. Is this system, I know the Eastern uh, systems are always a little like fuzzy to me as a like I guess native like Westerner with uh, without a direct you know, connection to that. Uh, I've learned a little bit about it. Like I guess in like the Vedic system, there's a lot of these different kinds of like uh, philosophies and systems where there's just like different combinations of schools of thought around kind of a similar kind of concept or like worldview, but there's almost all distinct interpretations of it. Does that sound like a way to describe the Eastern traditions like Tantra? No, you're totally, I totally think that that's right. I think that I look at Tantra as an innovation, really as a very innovative system that was synthesizing and also rectifying the different kinds of, we'll call it underground currents of magical techniques that all the religions were doing in Central Asia at the time. So it took everything, but it was taking things that were what we would consider, we'll call them unopened lotus seeds so they were maybe you could even say perennial seeds 
seeds that maybe existed from a greater prior system and they re-put it, they reconfigured it, remixed it, if you want to say it like that, mm -hmm. and they put it back into a greater system. So there are different schools. There, There's Indian Tantra, which is obviously, I don't like the word Hindu. It's very nebulous. I try not to use it. I try to just say the word Indian Tantra. But obviously, Indian Tantra is in the context of what we would call Hinduism. So definitely it's an underground current it's very uncommon in a hindu context but in a buddhist context especially in tibetan buddhist context however esoteric buddhism spans pretty well historically it would span all the way from like pakistan all the way to probably the tip of indonesia so the whole all of south asia and maybe Central Asia and Southeast Asia and East Asia all have tantric Buddhism styles, but they're not all the same, but there is a way to kind of understand it. Once you break the tantric dialectic, which we'll just say is inner outer secret. So once you understand that you can sort of peel the away the layers. relate to your just a comment that we are like spiritual brothers i guess the way to say it we are kin i totally relate to your being of mixed race i have i guess a brown dad and a white mom it really doesn't matter what they are because it's like so many things that that's how i feel no direct connection really to anything but i guess the american south i didn't have any um direct connection to like a religion growing up or anything like that uh, wait how old were you when you were like um, initiated by the by you said by the dalai lama well, yeah, so it was by the Dalai Lama, but that's not where my main practice comes from now. Right, right, right. But this, like, practice, what didn't this happen? How old were you when you met the Dalai Lama? Well, I like, I don't mind saying, but the... You don't have to say it. I'm sorry, you don't have to say No, 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 no. I, will, I totally don't mind saying it. What it is is it sounds like I'm playing magic numbers, which is something I notice a lot of other magicians do sometimes when they give answers on age. And it just happens that it was synchronistic. I don't even like that word, but... There were just certain times in my life where, where things aligned. So I was 13 when that happened. Mm. So that's that's what it was. I was going to make a joke about the Dalai Lama and boys, but that's actually probably too. Oh, no, no. I'm like, I am ethnic Chinese, so I'm not like, I don't hate China. But like you, my connections really are to this place, to America. I mean, I don't live in America, but I live like very North close. North America, right? Yeah. Yeah, North America. So I think I'm very rooted here. I'm very rooted in that like urban, like, like mid millennial experience of Toronto and like, you know, just like not even really caring about race, like being mixed, but being post-racial, 
I think that that totally exactly like- I totally vibe. Toronto is not that unlike the Bay Area. I feel like in in many ways, Canada is not unlike California. I would say in in, in many There's- ways culturally, you know. And I think one thing I actually think people might be surprised is that like you were mentioning, <laughs> the Dalai Lama was a good magician, right? And we'll move on from this. I know that's not your primary uh, background, but I think a lot of people associate like buddhism um even hinduism is like they're really not they're black boxes right people don't spend a lot of time thinking about it or they think especially buddhism is just this kind of like old men in the park like doing like tai chi which isn't like even buddhism but they they have a lot of magic in them and like crazy shit right like gods goddesses epics and legends right 100 percent. well we'll just start out my, I'll start my answer by saying, Thanks. and I've said in other shows, but I'm just going to repeat it because it's such an idol. I like it. So it's a saying that says religion is the bark that protects the tree. So obviously this has a greater metaphysical meaning as well. So that was a quote by Max Beauvoir, who, who mm. called himself, so he was a self-styled king of voodoo or pope of voodoo. And so he would always say that. And I would always listen to him he would obviously talk speak in french i would listen to him he would always talk about it and how it's important to have a system a practice a hermeneutic kind of textual relationship with what you're doing and that's what buddhism is and that's specifically that's what tantric buddhism is that's what vajrayana is and obviously indian tantra is a lot more of considered to be a nighttime practice so you will find less people talking about it now there are we'll say Western occultists who have attempted to kind of maybe color in the outline of Indian Tantra, but I don't think any of them have necessarily been successful or done a good likeness, we could say. Yeah, it's it's magic. That's what it is. I mean, I didn't even, so this is, my background was more playing around for a long time. And then I kind of got into some LHP practices and I didn't really realize what that even meant. I mean, I obviously did. What, what was that? LH, would you say LHP? Yeah. So left-hand path. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Then I kind of realized that I had to fix it to rectify some of the mistakes that I made. And I already had an academic background as well as as I said, a Kala Chakra initiation, and I had been attending Dharma talks for many years. So it wasn't unknown to me. And what a lot of people don't know is a lot of Buddhist scholars are also scholar practitioners. It's very common. And they usually come from, we'll say, a very specific religious background. That's not my religious background, but so they often combine Western esotericism with buddhism already so this is something that's like an unspoken practice we'll say within the greater western buddhist kind of continuum especially vajrayana so when we're i'm saying buddhism i'm talking vajrayana what that is the diamond thunder way it's the diamond thunder vehicle is another way to translate there are two other main schools which is the mahayana which is the greater vehicle so that's chinese buddhism Japanese Buddhism, Korean Buddhism. It's more of the monastic Buddhism where they build like fantastic temples and the, they have the bodhisattvas and it's all peaceful and everyone's everyone's just floating on their clouds and it's all like nice <laughs> and incense. It's like that. And then the there's dripping the water of- bowls and like the lotus, exactly. yeah, the lotus garden, the koi pond. You have to have exactly. a koi pond. 
No, 100%. And then there's Thai Buddhism, which is the, we call Hinayana, which is the smaller, lesser vehicle. And they will say that it's the same style as the Gautama Buddha of the 5th BCE. But we don't really consider it to be a continuum. We don't consider it to be like continual. Hmm. It's more of a, uh, we'll say like um, reconstruction. That's a hmm. good word. Re a reboot. As, yeah, reboot. So that's a great way to describe it. A reboot. But there's it's many kind of such cases, by the way. People might be surprised. Uh, some very popular religions actually are reboots, but I don't want to digress us there. Actually, let me no. pause actually really quickly because you did you introduced several uh, interesting styles, right? There's all these different kind of like flavors of this. I don't even know what is. Do you consider Buddhism a religion? It practice like I feel like our words don't capture it properly. Almost, you know. Okay, so again, I'm just going to speak from a tantric Buddhist perspective. So the other normie, so the normie Buddhists, like the non-magic Buddhists, I'm not going to give their voice. I think that it is a religion. I think it depends on how serious you are, but I think it's really a praxis. I think that's kind of what draws me to it. I think I've always liked the ritual elements of it. I think if you have like a Western esoteric or cult background or a Catholic background, which I didn't have all of those three backgrounds. I think that you are drawn to something that is inner outer secret. So part of the ritual process can be inner outer and secret at the same time. Hmm. And the, the outer rituals can be said to be a thergic process. So you're kind of, I don't know if you're forging, maybe you're reforging your incorporeal body to be more of a vessel for god it sounds like a trilectic a little bit because like i was like inner outer secret i was that sounds like three you could say dialectic is with like the synthesis being the third that there is always an implicit third but it sounds like almost like there is the three variables almost and they have seen you allude to this in your posts um so it's really interesting for me to hear like you describe this for for sure and it almost feels like your work uh your practice like your your pursuit is like this um purification almost of everything honestly of, of the cosmos of your own kind of ontology your own perspective i don't know how to really quite capture it but you mentioned this practice of these uh, that you engage in it's a combination maybe you're practicing what you preach basically you're not just a scholar but you are like a, a priest is not the right word what is the right word jen <laughs> but no i think i think you can make an interesting argument that tibetan buddhism specifically is kind of like uh has that element of Manichaeanism has the element of the society of the elect. They used to call uh, Tibetan Buddhism specifically Lamaism. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think priest is incorrect, actually. I love to abuse words, dude. Personally, I will throw things around on purpose because I'll think they're just close enough because I'm chaotic like that. But because because of my distinguished guests, I want to be like a little bit more precise. <laughs> this practice that you do, like this tradition, like how far back does that kind of practice go? I forget. It was like, was it Varanya? Uh, I forget. Can you tell, tell me the name of it again? I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Vajrayana. So it's Va like the, the think of Wolverine. So he has the adamantine skeleton, right? Mm -hmm. So in the DC and Marvel like origin story, like in the origin story of the publishing, all those guys were theosophists and mm -hmm. they all did Hatha yoga. So in like the Vedic stuff, which is what you asked me about before, there is this idea of Vajra. So V-A-J-R-A. -A. That can be translated in various ways. One way is adamantine. 
One way is Diamond Thunder. And there's other ways too, but I think those are the two primary ways. So what it is, it, exactly like I said, it should be a thergic process. So you will hear other people maybe in the more conspiratoid realm talk about like Vajra energy is this like free source of energy from the cosmos. And it is described as that, but it's really described as like an internal process. So something that we bring down into ourselves, circulate through your body, through the practices. You're not just like high on DMT and invoking all the things you're serious like you're serious you're doing it from a text you have your implements all, all everything is coordinated you're coordinated in mind body and speech you're doing the practices you're calling down the vajra energy and yeah i think purification is a good term there's this idea in kabbalah that the tree has been disassembled and and then continuously needs to be rectified so your audience will recognize some of the things from what's been going on as sometimes people will call it the process of rectification well maybe we won't say that but anyways uh it just some it's a thing that some people have felt the need to do because of a theological basis we'll say akin to be like a catholic some sort of like a suffering maybe i'm off base but continue please no no no. you're totally on base i'm just being very delicate in how i articulate it but i think that there is well we'll just call it a theological tendency maybe it's not just catholicism maybe it's sure, sure, sure. I raise it, yeah i raise it uh, to illustrate that these things can be really relative, that there's a lot of these concepts that uh, manifest or understood in different lenses across different traditions, which is, I think, yes. something to illustrate. So I did mention that, not to single out uh, Catholics anyway. No, I'll no, no, no. You can, do that no, you can single out later. <laughs> you know, I'm not a big fan. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot to criticize, obviously, and I'm very deep in the conspiracy rabbit hole. Like maybe, I don't know if I'm the guest that is the deepest, but I think that I'm definitely in the top three. So That's I'm definitely cool. like further competition. I want to do that now. It's not a competition, but it's no, like, no, I'm going to make it one. That sounds fun. <laughs> so I know you did the great episode on 9-11 with low IQ and Q. And you guys were talking about like Babylon workings and was it or wasn't it? Like I'm totally already there. Like for me, that's like a given reality. It's not a stretch for me to say it's magic. But I also think that there's this misconception about what magic really is. <laughs> and I think I'll just give this little definition and people can make of it what they want. And I know also talked about will. So will is very important in Buddhism, but even in Kabbalah, it's very important. And will appears at the sphere called Hode, which is what we would say is the greater Mercury. So it's not the planet Mercury, but it's the layers around Mercury. So there are five densities to each sphere. So it's important, but it's still a lower sphere. And when I say lower, it just means it's closer to our human experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, Babylon working. So I just think that magic is sound. Magic is light. Magic is color. Magic is speech, gross and subtle speech. So that has to have two categories, but it's only, it's like a subcategories within the one greater whole of speech. Okay. And then 
Can also, you give an example of the distinction between those two types of speech? Okay, so in Sanskrit, so this is true for both Vedic and Tantric and like just Normie Hinduism, like in the Puranas. The Puranas are like the stories that came in the first through, we'll say, 7th century. So they're these kinds of like reconfigurations of the previous Vedas and the Upanishads and all that. So basically the gods are given new names, new identities, but the story, the Leela, that's what it's called in Sanskrit, the great play, is retold and remixed, but in a specific way. So sometimes in, especially with Sanskrit, because Sanskrit also very much like Hebrew has syllables that are magic syllables associated with it. So if you understand those magic magic syllables called bijas, which are the lotus seeds, you can understand the twilight language in the text. Hmm. Now that's very esoteric sounding, but it's really not that hard once you understand like what to look for, because there's always a context, just like with anything, just like with any kind of writing, there's always a context surrounding the syllable. So, mm-hmm. and it's not just syllables. It's just, it's, it can also be conceptual ideas because each syllable is also a conceptual idea. So it's interesting because when you read the Puranas, a lot of like the normie, like right-wing Hindu bros will be like, oh, the Puranas, they're, you know, they suck. They're just like some village practice, whatever. But actually the Puranas are really important because they really lay out the groundwork of the three pillars of Tantra, if you want to say that. So there's the guru, which is Shiva, the hero or the viras, which is Vishnu in his many avatars, because Vishnu also dies and reincarnates. And then the third one is Brahma or the creator God. But in a tantric conception, we don't say it's Brahma. We say it's Devi. So the goddess. So I think when we're talking about subtle speech, Subtle speech is the ability to code your words and encode your words to cast an illusion of the world and someone has to perceive it even if they don't understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So in a way, that's why television, film, music even can be said to be the greatest like mediums for magic because magic really is electricity so just like what we're doing right now right For people to consider maybe uh, what you're kind of alluding to is this idea that letters really are not just letters. They are symbols and all symbols uh, encode 
other things. They encode other meanings that are transmitted. Yeah. That is the purpose of symbols and symbolism. And it goes very much back to very primal kind of primordial or even i guess kind of roots go look up any word and often you'll find it's like proto-indo-european origins it's all this yes. very like, archaic very much like vedic era roots the way i would describe it maybe even is literal code in software that looks one way but it, it renders a different effect when it goes up on the screen or does the software actions it's supposed to do like there's like these hidden codes and commands really inside the language that people uh, may or may not perceive <laughs> up front, but that is there nonetheless. And I, I would say, I argue scientifically, could have a imperceptible effect on people's minds and actions on the subconscious, you know? No, I love that analogy. I think that's perfect. I think the like programming language is the perfect way to encapsulate what I'm really talking about, cutting away all the esoteric bullshit. Like I know that gets very- As a starting point, <laughs> is just what I'm trying to say. You know, for I people know, to get I, their minds there, I you like, know? I like it, I'm down with it. I think that that's a great, I mean, the internet is magic. That's mm -hmm. the reality. Technology and is absolutely, yeah. Technology is the dragon, right? Like technology is our interaction with electricity and with innovation. So that is pretty much how we make devices. That's like doing a alchemical process as well. I want to say like alchemy, there's right wing and, and left, whatever people, whatever these people are that are like, hermeticism is absolutely always evil. Kabbalah is evil practice. Like everything outside of my brand new traditional Catholicism that I adopted 18 months ago is satanic and barbaric. And there is truth. I think people should be suspicious of anyone who's like, <laughs> who's and believes anything actually, whether it's a religion or one of these kind of uh, practices, ancient, new, uh, tantras, uh, whatever it is, these are just frameworks. There's ways that these can be used to harm people and have harmed people and can bring people down and be used for like really bad things, right? And there's ways that these are used by people to ascend or kind of like level up or go beyond even the religion itself. They become, you know, conduits almost in a sense. Everything contains both of those things. So I think we shouldn't be like afraid to talk about alchemy. Like I think people get really hung up on these things. And I think that actually serves conspiratorial purposes when you associate anything with any of these concepts as absolutely evil at any point. It's reductive and you kind of like, it's really, it can really take people astray, I feel. I think everything you said is great. I think that, yeah, like mystification, not just in capitalism, not just in mm -hmm. Marxism, it's very real in all things. And like what people don't really understand is that there is, in, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but there is a perennial system, okay? And there is mm -hmm. this process like I said, of zipping and unzipping. Now, in Kabbalah, describes mm -hmm. it as one specific way of um, God falling into the spheres and then the primordial couple, so Adam and Eve. Well, you know this because you wrote, you did a whole post about Stonewall, about Adam Cadmon and breaking <laughs> the vessels. I know a thing or two, maybe, maybe a little linger too, but no, please go on. No, I'm, I'm curious. So I, I'm, I'm still a student. Come on. But that was facts to me. So every now and then I do post things like they're facts to me. I am contract. I don't even know where they come from. I have to do it. They they send me these faxes and I have to post them. So like, don't don't mind me. Like, just yeah, keep going, please. Well, that is that is that's Lurianic Kabbalah. So Lurianic <laughs> Kabbalah really believes in this idea of God falling into the shards or the vessels. We'll say the pottery vessels. And in I will say this is that in Tantra we do have a very very, very similar understanding in the Kujika Tantra. So that's a tantric text from Nepal from the 12th century. 
and she is the goddess of the shoe jar case, so pottery, so potter's cast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically what it is is, okay, so really where magic goes wrong is when it affects the entire world, when you affect the karma of other beings, okay, where you break the oaths and the treaties because we believe that there is an innate hidden treaty, just like Mithraism, there's even a goddess assigned to the invisible treaty. So we'll just say that. So basically she governs the, we'll say the natural cosmic function, the cycle of time, death and rebirth. Okay. So by doing that, we just live our lives. We live out our karma. We come back on earth. We live out our karma and we, maybe we ascend to the God realm once in a while, or maybe we descend if we've done something really bad. But basically, we end up on Earth because this is a good place for us, because we can choose where we want to go, up or down. So basically, we have to try, well, in a Buddhist way of thinking, we have to try to not affect someone else's will, not impose ourselves on someone else's karma. That is considered to be a grave sin. And you find like with Crowley and the, and the, we'll call it the post-war Babylon workings, they did not care. And in some ways it was very Kabbalistic because in Lurianic Kabbalah, the idea is, is that it's a collective responsibility to rectify the tree. In Buddhism, we believe the tree is already rectified. It's really up to each individual Pasaka or each individual practitioner to climb the tree on their own. It's not really up to us to rectify the whole world. However, we do believe that by us doing it, us doing the practices, us climbing the tree higher, that we will improve the spheres and the will of everyone around us. Purify, you could say. In incredible. Wait, hold on. Okay. This Crowley, I guess, kind of uh, interpretation, this group will that you're describing maybe, or collective renegotiation of the invisible treaty. Uh, they think it takes like a whole, you know, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band to, you know, organize and get together to storm on like wherever they keep the treaty, right? That was so vivid to me, uh, the, way, the way you described it. Um, and then this idea of like, um, improving your world over the entire world that's so fascinating because it's like a conclusion i truly have come to recently myself is just you cannot like it's ridiculous to try to change the world really just change your world for the better and like the people around you and that will actually like if everyone uh, if everyone did that that would actually improve the world quite tremendously right and so i feel like uh you're very wise i i say you're wise because it's uh, echoes my echoes my own thoughts jen but it's very incredible and wise to hear uh everything you've shared here so you brought up Kabbalah a little bit. You kind of described that as a Kabbalistic practice. And you mentioned the, the episode previously with uh, Oso Blanco, my co-host for the uh, bi-weekly call-in show. I was there live on Twitter Spaces, Sundays, 4 p.m. Pacific time. You mentioned that program that you, you, you had heard before and had listened to as a reference point for maybe even this conversation. And you just mentioned Crowley and this, like, I don't know, Kabbalistic enterprise, maybe. So what do you mean by that? Well... I think my definition of what holistic means is a series of correspondences. And I think if you understand what the tree is really saying, and there are obviously very different interpretations. The Zohar presents one interpretation. The Cordovero, who's my favorite, he presents another interpretation. Lurias, 
who I don't like presents an inverted, in my opinion, interpretation. So, and then Buddhism obviously presents another one. Zoroastrianism obviously presents another one, but they're really talking about the same thing. So what Crowley did was he kind of married the Hebrew Kabbalah with the Egyptian pantheon. And in my, this is just my opinion, just my opinion. I personally think that he, well, him and Madame Blavatsky, and then all the ones that came after Jack Parsons, all of that, although they were very postmodern, obviously, like the Kenneth Anger crowd and Tuesday Welds and all of that, like that was very, you know, Jane Mansfield and Anton LaVey and all that. They were just very postmodern, I think, much more than. Well, maybe they were. Maybe they were doing something. I mean, Michael Aquino, who I know that you're fascinated with, he definitely was doing something with the Temple of Set. I mean, like what they were doing mm. was pretty crazy. And and I think he was like a serious magician. I actually think Crowley was too. Um, I know Oso said that maybe he's more peripheral, but I think he's important because he kind of like synthesized all these different ideas that were kind of floating around like golden dawn oto astrum argentum and he i don't like crowley personally that's not my like style of magic i find it very degenerate but again it's just my opinion people can do what they no, want no, nobody nobody does it's, it's fine Jim. No, nobody likes okay, him okay. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think i kind of agree with because his own influence his uh, his influence on culture it kind of belies his abilities in a sense right or maybe vindicates him whether he was like good at it in a sense of like responsible maybe or like highly practitioner maybe he's a little bit of like a street urchin version or kind of a drive-by magician maybe but he was effective i guess is what maybe you're even saying because there is this impact of him you can name so many people like everybody actually in rock and roll business period and that includes yeah. like rap and everything else is influence or is a disciple essentially of crowley the whole industry no yeah, i mean you're totally right i mean there's something really interesting there like that whole laurel canyon that's not my particular specialty of like where i'm like have my you know where i've interrogated it fully but i think sure. there's definitely something there but mm -hmm. what i also wanted to say about crowley and blavatsky because okay. mm -hmm. i think theosophy really is the root of what we're really looking at in, in like the postmodern way i think they were really interested in tantra they were really interested in tantric buddhism specifically but also shakta tantra which is more goddess tantra they, she was very interested in both of those things. And both of those things are very closely related in one way of thinking. I'm not saying they're the same, but I'm, they are, they have a lot of overlap. Okay. So people just, I just want to say that because people do get a little upset with me sometimes because I will say, oh, this is similar to this. So I just want to say that I, I do recognize that they are different epistems, but they might have a common origin or, you know, overlap. So I think that they understood that the tantric systems actually apply to the Hebrew tree a lot better. I think that there's much more of a cohesion. I think that the Egyptian pantheon is, there is something there. I'm not saying there's not anything there, but I'm saying that it's not a working system. Tantra has been around for 1800 years, perhaps longer if we understand it from a more tantric perspective, but I think that's a good like normie like historical materialism date i think that's a good date 1800 years so i think that they understood it at least partly 
And I think that that's why they were obsessed with Central Asia, obsessed with the great game, obsessed with, you know, finding Shambhala, all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that by, by using the Egyptian pantheon, it's like a bait and switch. They said, this is where to look. But then why did you have all the later left-hand pe- left-hand path people, like contemporary occultists? I'm talking even right, like right now. They're all looking, and they've always known to look, to Central Asia. So I think that, in my opinion, and I am a little bit of a Central Asianist, just full disclosure, but I think that's where we should be looking as well. So I think when I bring up Kabbalah, I'm not really talking about Hebrew Kabbalah specifically. I am, but I think it's also because it's so similar to what I have personally practiced and experienced. I mean, those, yeah, those evil modern, the modern evil witches like Taylor Swift, probably even I would, I would venture to guess. Everyone looks in there. Wait, Central Asia, the piece with the, the theosophy is really interesting because I think uh, if people are familiar, this is like the introduction of basically all new age and occult like thinking in like the West, I would say probably beginning, like, I guess like Victorian era craze, uh, this like really a lot of it for this woman. Blavatsky, uh, Madame Blavatsky, a very fascinating person. When you were mentioning actually your practice even earlier in the program when you're talking about scholars who do both, I was thinking of her actually. I was wondering if there was any kind of association because you mentioned they're essentially Western practitioners of Buddhism or or, or syncretitions. They're kind of like blending or, or understanding both both lanes in a sense. Did she steal a lot of this from like, is there like a little bit of beef there? Is there anything you can, any tea you can spill? <laughs> Oh, for sure. Like, I don't mind because I don't like her. So it's totally fine. I don't like theosophy either. So I'm I'm fine to like, um, be mean. <laughs> like it's very pop. Like it's like a, the pop version of many things. This is the way I, w- I would think of it for people if they're not familiar. Like a um, commercialization almost. It's plastic kind of to me in a, in a way. It's like a product. No, no, I think you're totally right. I totally agree with that. I think that it is exactly that. I think it it's a mass market religion maybe you could say it's a globalist religion Mm. it's a very new world order religion their whole thing is age of aquarius even in like 1898 she was saying things like that and i do when she made it to nepal she said she went to tibet but there's no evidence and like her and then there was another lady called alexandra neil who was also like larping about in tibet and wearing different outfits and getting pictures taken but it really she was in india so there and it's it comes from a long tradition of people doing that it's not just like them but i think with blavatsky i think definitely she definitely was seeing the things that were going on in especially west bengal and assam and orisha which is our uh, states in india and i think that in nepal is really the center of tantra if you want to think of it in a syncretic way like it's called nuari tantra so it's very buddhist in its form but they have a lot of they've maintained and protected a lot of the indian tantric practices that have gone underground so really nepal is like the tantric heartland in a way mm-hmm. so i think that she definitely saw everything that happens i mean if you go to Kathmandu, there's the huge um stupa which has all like the dakinis all around and the yoginis and the they have like the eight byrobs so these like eight kind of like demonic looking kind of like time gods they're all time lords and then they have like the there's four varahis so four boar-headed goddesses that guard the valley 
So I think that there's a lot of esoteric ideas just in Nepal, just even just from a superficial, like going there and looking sort of like that. Hmm. You know, hmm. that process it's, like of- air, it's like in the air almost, right? Like it, you, you breathe it in. It's osmosis kind of. Hundred, hundred percent. No, I agree with that. That's so, I just think, I think you're right. I think you're onto something there. I think that she definitely was like, she, she ended up at the ashram in India. She adopted that like 12 year old boy. He, she wanted him to become, you know, the guru of the world or whatever. And I think that she, I don't know. I think that she was playing with things that she didn't really, maybe she understood. Maybe she was just like a witch who just wanted to invert the world because I've seen that before. I mean, there are other historical examples, so I don't necessarily think that's wrong, but then maybe you could also say that she was trying to fix the world. So I think that you have these two kind of like what seem like opposing or competing ideas of like rectification and ruin, but in Buddhism, it's non-dual. So we don't look at it as like a singular process. It's like an ongoing cyclical process that happens a lot of it is psychological, but it's not fully psychological either. There are deities, there are ghosts, demons, and nagas, and garudas, and you know, the whole universe is chaotic and complicated. But really, what comes down to it is yourself, your practice, and kind of like your orientation towards what we would call the middle pillar. So, if people are familiar with Kabbalah, well, there are three pillars on the tree. So that's interesting then that Buddhism focuses on the middle pillar. And you would, even in like just a linguistic way, it's so similar sounding to me. fascinating i think earlier i said something about a secret treaty and you were saying secret tree i think referencing the- no no i did say treaty i did say okay treaty. good there is both because i was like i think there's both i was like there's definitely secret treaties like a hundred percent um maybe with nepal or with some uh principality there in who knows well we don't have to go into it, but i know for a fact Jim, there are secret treaties with uh ancient Lemurians in california a large chunk of the land is still theirs it's part of the the vassal state the federation that's left over for their royal family or whatever it's 
it's complicated, but that's not what we're here to discuss per se. I do think though that this woman that you're describing, when you were describing her, I was thinking she's like a Madonna from her uh, age. And right before you said she adopted like some 12 year old boy, <laughs> it was like it's such a Madonna move to make him like a star. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's a perfect role for our queen, Roseanne, uh, Roseanne Barr. I think she would be really good in like a movie about like Blavatsky in America. That would be so fucking good. So I totally agree with you. And I will also channel like our conversation towards manifesting Roseanne appearing on your show. So we'll just put that out in the universe right now. I think it'd be and, nice to talk to her for sure. Yeah. That's like, that's all the most I would hope for. You I know? mean, but you have to ask her like questions about the spheres. You can't just like be like, tell us know. about these spheres. What What do you mean by the yeah. spheres? Uh, so um, the Kabbalah tree has 11 spheres or 10 spheres, 10 spheres, but there's also a secret sphere. Okay. So you could say that the secret treaty, not tree, but treaty, is the governance of all the spheres in relation to each other. So if we're looking at it in like a gross material way, we could say it's between the planets and us. So our karma, that is the treaty, is how we act. Then we, when we were born, that is our planetary placement in our individual birth chart, in a Vedic way of thinking. So the Kabbalah tree has 10 spheres. Every sphere is made up of five densities related to the Tetragrammaton, the five names of God. Now, obviously, I practice Tantric Buddhism, so I don't look at it exactly the same, but we have very similar overlaid concepts. So every sphere relates to a planet, relates to a conceptual idea, uh, relates to different things colors different sounds different syllables in hebrew obviously i use sanskrit it's a table of correspondences but really what cordovero is saying from the series is called the orchard of pomegranates just like we would say the seeds of the lotus in hebrew kabbalah they use the seeds of the pomegranate so that's also very interesting and we also use pomegranates i don't do this because i'm not a hindu but they will use pomegranates as a sacrificial offering instead of animals in mm -hmm. some kind of mantra. So I think that's very interesting also. There's like a lot of overlap there with just right. one. Like, yeah. Pomegranates in like Genesis, I think I've heard before. Like the real fruit, yeah. I know original translation, it's not an apple tree. It's a, it's a pomegranate tree. I think that I like that. I think that I would totally accept that as I don't like know if that's true I could I think it's true <laughs> I think no I think they I mean Cordovero describes it just like that it's like the God is the pomegranate so God is the whole and then there are different seeds that are planted from God which are also related to words so syllables and uh you can grow a garden with the seeds but some people believe that the seeds are corrupted because they're not part of the whole. But if you understand what Cordovero was saying, and I'm using Cordovero specifically, because he believed that at the inner core of all of the 10 spheres, or 11, that it's white, just pure, not white as in like white people or anything like this, not racial. It's pristine like the sky, so like a sky blue, but it's really clear or white. So that, and so each sphere is fully God when you're at the inner density but when you're at the exterior densities people add in different correspondences just like i said with crowley and blavatsky adding in the egyptian pantheon onto the tree 
So it's kind of a corruption. And by adding so many more layers, you're kind of mystifying God, you're kind of obscuring what the spheres really mean. And so in a tantric way of understanding, and there's also a shadow tree called the Chipolith. So that also has 11 spheres. However, Cordovero said that there was no shadow tree, that it's only one tree. And in Buddhism, we also say that there's only one tree, but like demonic forms will also arise. And sometimes people will say that that's psychological, but that's not really the real meaning. But sometimes that's easier for people to accept. So you can say that the demonic forms also arise in the spheres, but we understand them in a non-dual way. So you could say that the the spheres are, when the demonic forms arise, it's to overcome our fear. So everything is to overcome our fear and our sin and our desires and our lusts and our whatever. It's all the things. It's the five skandhas and the five maras. So basically, that's what it is. So when you add layers, you obfuscate and mystify. And when you do the practice, you are discerning wisdom from method. So you are clearing the spheres of all the additional correspondence. Mm. And that's basically Kabbalah. That was like the most articulate description I've ever heard. Most direct, I'd say. I love the idea of like, there's like a clear pill at the center of every every sphere. There's just like the ray of hope, I guess. Maybe you could even say, wait, and this idea, what you were just touching on there, which is like, there's no shadow. Uh, almost maybe a way of saying it is that the demonic or the evil components are almost like a projection of mankind, maybe, or like a, a test of ours or some kind of, it's not necessarily a subdivision or separate, uh, like a realm no you're totally right and we do have this concept called dependent origination which is kind of like this it's a very complicated like ontological reasoning of of why things appear in the world and their relationship to us i won't i can't really explain it that well so i won't no worries I will just say that, like, you're totally right that there is part of us that is very co-creative, very co-creative with the universe, very co-creative with reality. Now, in Tantra, we don't consider what we see isn't necessarily reality. That's called Maya. So it's the kind of the beauty of the illusion of the world. But there is also a hidden truth to the world, which we call the Mahasmashana, which is the ultimate carnal ground of reality. I know that's kind of like a little heavy, but it's that is the, the truth. It's kind of matrixy, to be honest. But there is like this idea of almost like a well, it, it lines exactly with what you were describing before, like inner, outer, and secret, almost right, kind of in a, yeah. in a way. Jen, I want to ask you: uh, you've got these anti-cosmic Gnostic Satanists, Jen. You describe them. Uh, I think you've described them as possibly Babylonian as well, which I believe. It's fascinating because of just a relevant concept, maybe that I feel like I really vibe with. What? Who are the? Who are these people? What? What are you talking about? Okay, so there is a contemporary occult stream. Obviously, I don't even think anyone, maybe Oso is probably the only one who's even heard of this idea, because it is very sinister and it's very left-hand path. Okay, now left-hand path does not necessarily mean evil, especially in a tantric conception. But then when you have people like Crowley and Blavatsky and they just do whatever they want, well, in one way of thinking, the way you live your life is a path. So the more promiscuous you are, I'm not just saying that 
I'm just giving an example. I'm not, I'm not about if you're a huge fucking slut, if you're a no loads refused type of hoe, dot, dot, dot. Yes. (laughs) That is very left hand path. So that is, even though you're not, it's not magic per se, it is the way you're living your life does actually mean something on the tree. Especially if you're trying to penetrate the densities of the spheres. I'm not trying to use like penetrate in like a weird psychosexual way, but it is a good way to describe how to do it. So, but yes, the way you live your life does determine the interaction with the spheres. So yes, the left-hand path can be useful in specific ways because you're always, especially in Buddhism, you're trying to kind of maneuver yourself in the middle. You're trying to synthesize the right and the left-hand actions. So you're not going to either extreme, but so definitely in that way, like it does matter, like how you live your life and like kind of like just having like a basic sense of morality. But the problem is, is like a lot of the left-hand path people just will say, oh, it's all non-dual. Life is just non-dual. We all live on the carnal ground of ultimate reality, which is true in one way of thinking. But like, if you're saying you're so non-dual, then we both live in Maya and we both live in the Mahasmashana. So it's both things at the same time and both are real. Okay. So they believe that we just live in one place. It's very Cartesian. If you want to think of it like that, it's very dualistic. And in Buddhism, we would say that dualism is the greatest kind of like sin of the mind to believe that like if you hurt someone or hurt something it's not just do without will it's very specific that even in indian tantra you do not just do anything you only do things inside of ritual prescription that's why the religious part is so important that's why the text-based practice is so important so what babylonian anthrocosmic gnosticism is and that's their description I'm just going to say that I did like kind of like maybe say the term out loud, but that is their kind of like way that they think of themselves. They believe that they're just like extreme left-hand path people and there's nothing they won't really do. And if you read the contemporary occult text that is describing that path, it's very transgressive, like as transgressive as people could imagine. So, but it also relates to a historical thing, like everything always does, right? So there obviously was this kind of like Jervanite, maybe polytheistic Yahwehism, I've heard it described before, that is arrive, arising out of Babylon in say like the third to eighth century. So these are people that are very transgressive. Maybe they're priests at a temple. Maybe they're just lay people, but they're practicing nighttime rituals. And they're doing these practices that are very much against creation and their purpose is, okay, so we'll use a political example. So the left, so the current left, and maybe even like the 2016 till now left, they very much externalize their kind of misanthropy and their world hatred, we'll say. That's very anti-cosmic, actually, when Mm -hmm. they kind of crystallize that into their politics this kind of hatred for everyone for everything for everything that is like good and normal not that not that normal has to be like Susie q 
1950s housewife. I'm not even saying that. I'm I'm definitely right, not. But this, uh, like a rejection of like like antinatalism, for example, the idea that yes. you have yes. children like that men are bad, for example, yes. that there's no difference maybe between sexes. Even sounds a little bit transgressive. Yes, uh, radical. Yes. You know. Yes. No, you're totally right. Like the Donna Haraway cyborg feminism, that's 100%. That's a perfect, perfect, perfect example. That's It's taking nature outside of the womb and externalizing it into technology. So that, in one way of thinking, could be considered Luciferian. Because mm -hmm. Luciferianism is really just the combination of human ingenuity with kind of like an alchemical creation technology. So that is what that is, but it's not, but even when she's talking about it, she's describing a process completely devoid of nurture, completely devoid of love, completely devoid of nature. So that would be considered anti-cosmic, very much so. So that's a great example. I love the term anti-cosmic. It's so good. It's like, we know who the enemy is. It's just anti-cosmic. It's just perfect. This radical, transgressive, bloodthirsty, destructive mutation, I would almost say, of these traditions, it feels like to me. What you're describing sounds like very much like, uh, we're now getting to James Lindsay territory, but like the underpinnings of things like the, the Frankfurt School, Bolshevism, even just these ideas of Zionism. No, oh, zoops, I said it, Zionism. The idea is that like, oh, anything, nothing matters except for this one goal and everything else is permitted, you know, that is like very, it's bloodthirsty. Well, and what did Babylon kind of innovate? If we're looking at it as a progressive theory of religion, we'll say, or progressive theory of magic, Babylon was really into state rights. So when you're talking exactly like you're talking about Zionism, transgressivity as state ritual, those are all what's happening. And I think, yes, James Lindsay is right in a way, but he also obfuscates mm -hmm. something. Gnosticism yes. in and of itself, as you know, I've heard you say on this show, Gnosticism in and of itself is not evil. And I will completely agree and reiterate that. Because Gnosticism doesn't refer to just one, it's not just like, like a broad, yes, we use it in like that kind of imprecise broad umbrella kind of terminology, much like the word Hindu, but it that doesn't mm -hmm. even mean anything. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there are so many different kinds. There are so many different kinds of Gnostics and Buddhism is, is, is especially Tantric Buddhism specifically is one kind of Gnosticism. Just like you could say that Dewey Decimal System is a kind of Gnosticism. It's a kind of categorization into different epistems of knowledge. So mm -hmm. you're siloing things just like Kabbalah, just like putting things into the spheres, assigning qualities to god because that was the original correspondences right it's a order, order of correspondences yeah exactly so when we attribute things that aren't so the original idea is the aristotelian dialectic so basically it was time and space dark and light that's the axis they used so the iranian priests then these other priests came by and they were like oh we're going to start assigning good and bad qualities to god but the reality is, is when you assign bad qualities to God, what are you doing? You're doing an a dialectical alchemical process. So you are kind of creating a part of God, you could say, that is evil, an egregore maybe. So basically, that's what we're talking about. Whenever, like Zionism is its own egregore.
it exists because it exists in the minds of people. They put it into the world through state ritual. And state ritual does not mean, yes, I mean, I definitely believe that they go down to the capstone at Al-Aqsa Mosque and they do like Solomonic magic, Enochian magic, whatever. I do think that that's my personal opinion. But mm, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think that it can also be just in words. Like, that's where the, really the magic is. It's in the dialectic, right? Like, that's really what mm. it comes down to. Mm. It's control. It's assigning meaning to things. It's assigning, it's assigning virtue, you could say, to certain things that might be transgressive. Mm. Like, maybe we could say neither side, you know, this is more my perspective, is that neither side is like, my favorite so i will just say that maybe assigning virtue to either one is kind of like um anti-cosmic in a way Mm -hmm. which is how i feel about the israel uh palestine conflict as we speak right just no no we just no no (laughs) no thank you that was incredible uh exactly what you're saying about the power of words and ascribing things that's why so this idea of gnostic as a slur the reason i feel like i'm reclaiming it now it's just like anti-vaxxer or transphobe all these stupid words right that they use for like spellbinding people to like these words become like a cross that you have to bear you know and so by leaning into them a little bit it's like pushing back on that right um and so gnostic like you're right james Lindsay is so frustrating because he i think is very correct in a lot of ways but it is reductive and he has this definition of like gnosticism where it's it's a very specific worldview that i don't agree with really at all and so i feel like it looks very strange to me and i find this whole pushback like i don't understand christians pushing back on gnosticism other than the reason that the church leaders did which is to suppress a bunch of true things and hidden uh histories uh you know what i mean like it's it's no there would be no church without the, the original gnostics it's just so bizarre to me to see this like group of people just misrepresented in such a strange like way and i i have said before i feel like everybody at this moment that was like like realizing that something was like really really wrong like during the covid period are kind of like the early christians in a lot of ways it's a historical analogy that feels right for the times it's, it's interesting that having that sense that there's this kind of like persecution of gnosticism and gnostics happening at that very moment as i was making that connection roman empire it never ended vibes i guess you know it never ended i mean we it's it, so yeah. odd. it never ended the roman imperial eagle is still very much alive the eagle and the serpent I mean, it's both of those things, right? Like in Buddhism, the eagle gives civilization and the snake gives the secret practices. So I think that's exactly what they're doing, in my opinion. And I think that you're totally right. And I think, I think you know, James Lindsay is like 80% of the way there. He, But I actually, he gets it, gets it. But I think that he does not articulate it in like, the way that we're doing right now. I think he's not looking for nuance in it. I think he wants to mark, like put it, he wants to market it as a product in the market. That's true. I think definitely on Twitter, I've heard some of his longer speeches. He is a little bit more nuanced, but he's still, he'll never be a hundred percent because he is in a media space. He wants to be accepted there. And so you can't ever be a hundred percent right and be popular. That's not allowed. And so <laughs> that's just how it works. Right. I think there's a lot that he's alluding to that he's very accurate with like, uh, even although I think he, I think Hegel's kind of misunderstood in some ways. Everybody wants to make him so demonic. I don't know. That's exactly correct. All hundred percent, but, but there is this kind of undertone 
or underlying uh, mysticism or current that uh, belies all of this kind of this thought. So like, I don't know, I'm not a dabbler or practitioner of any kind of magic per se, other than the sense that everything really truly is magic in a sense, like technology, uh, yeah. the idea of alchemy, like I've, I've never heard that this show is an alchemical product because it is like we start with nothing and we come together, uh, we figure something out and it like, comes together and over time it's kind of refined and it becomes something distilled, right? It becomes something emblematic of what happened, right? So it's not like, that's not a secret. And I don't think it's easily, I maybe, maybe I'm breaking some rules because I'm not aware of them, right? So who knows what's really happening but i don't feel like this product is harmful to the world i, I like to think it's a counterbalance maybe even to some of the harmful no, no, effects, but it's not for the world right it's for me no but you, you what you don't i i think you do understand this actually i think that the trivium the arrow the arrow of rhetoric pierces through and cuts the dialectic the goddess who's assigned to that sphere she wields a bow and an arrow specifically so that is the key rhetoric is the key the dialogue is the dialectic that is the way to kind of break the spell break the illusion that's why hmm. i personally was drawn to podcasting like to be a guest and to sort of like discuss ideas that were a little transgressive because i thought this is a good way to demystify a good way to break some of the i don't know the thinking around it that I thought was wrong. That's exactly right. understand maybe even the history of uh like different practices and teachings throughout time is just sort of like not even necessarily emanations but just impressions or just different ways of kind of understanding sort of like fundamental truths they're the ways of them kind of bubbling up up no, that time and place right that's that's exactly right they're just it's so okay so from a buddhist way i'll just we'll end with this because this is like a cleaner way and i think it's also my perspective so that's probably better basically there is a primordial couple at the top of the tree that's who we want to be that's where we want to get we want to like go past kether go past the crown we want to reunite reunify method and wisdom the female consort is the wisdom the male consort is the method so that's the point so every emanation of wisdom so the female consort especially because i post a lot of them the Dakinis and the goddesses, they have very specific meanings for our, they're the most helpful considered to be like our, you could say our angels, our Luciferic kind of archangels, we could say, but they take a more wrathful form. They're not 
androgynous and they're very they are both left and right-handed we can say so they really help us to understand our practice that much better because they are the ones who give us instruction when we lose our way they help us find the path again where the male deities they're much more structured it's much more found in the practice but if you're a very realized practitioner, I'm not a very realized practitioner, I'm just saying, you can find the Dakinis in people, in the outside world, if you can understand the ways they interact with us. I think that's a good way to end it. Fascinating. Jin the ninja. I hope much more than just a ninja. Not that there's anything wrong with being just a ninja, but a true teacher and star in the constellation of the Backlash universe, indeed. It's been a pleasure to spend this evening uh, with you. What should people uh, do to follow and learn more about you? So thank you so much, Poolhouse, for having me on. It's honestly been like a huge honor to even be asked. I've been very lucky in like podcasting that people have like always asked me and I've never had to like simp or beg to ever be on a show. And to be on this show is actually really cool because I actually respect like everyone you've had on. And that's pretty rare, right? To like <laughs> like true. Everyone. Maybe with like, no, I think I would say, everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, I think everybody, I'm not like, uh, I'm not as hard ass as <laughs> but anyways, um, no. So people can find me on Twitter, Wukong Reborn, W-U-K-O-N-G Reborn. Um, I did an 11 part series on the Mahavijas. So that's more of the Indian tantric system, but it's a syncretic grouping um, with the Kabbalah. So on a show called Subconscious Realms. I've been on a bunch of libertarian podcasts. I've been on, I'm doing a series on occult rejects and friends right now. Uh, what else? I'm doing a near death experiences. We're going to have also on for that. So, uh, and we're going to have you on one day. I would love to please. And you know, it's just like, uh, so much happening and just like, we ought to get everybody ready to rock and roll. But, uh, yeah. So I've got like a million series, honestly coming up. And I've like been hard at work and my own RSS feed will come up probably in the next month or two. So yeah, let's stay on the lookout for that. I'm not that interesting. I don't think to follow on Twitter because I'm like kind of a hard ass. And then also like esoterica posting. So it could be probably like a lot for people. I, so not, I, I disagree. No, I no disagree. It's like when those who post like a bear or something like that. It's interesting. Like, and sometimes it fits. Sometimes uh, you'll post a, a deity or, or a sphere or just some information that just, even if it doesn't feel appropriate for the time, first of all, it's just like a palate cleanser, right? It just feels uh, refreshing to see. But sometimes it's like, oh, this is interesting and it's apt, right? There are correspondences, right? There is, there are coincidences or synchronicities. Go, go spin the wheel of fortune and just see what comes upon your timeline by following Jin the Ninja. Um, Jin, this has been, again, an honor. Do you have any final closing uh, thoughts or words for the Backlash audience? Well, I think you're an alchemist in your own way and a mystic and a sage and maybe even a little bit of a sorcerer. And none of those things are bad. 